everyone. Hope you've had a great week. Thanks for tuning into our podcast and hope it encourages you, inspires you as you go about your week. Here's today's message. Hey, I want to speak to you. I'm just aware at the moment, um, we don't normally do it the way, so if I was anchoring our service and speaking, I'm just aware we're having a lot of Jeff Shepard up here today, aren't we? Um, Sorry if that's a bit laborious for you. Um, I apologize. (laughs) But let's look at God's Word. I'm really thankful as we do. Uh, If I look back for the heritage that I've been given, um, not just from my parents, but, but just from the wider village, you know, the village that you grow up in. And I'm especially thinking I spent, you know, my first three high school years and then really stayed connected the whole time through high school, even though we were in the country, over at Mitchum Baptist Church, the other side of town. And, and it was just like, I, I think, I, like, I, I was pretty privileged the way that we grew up there. Just a great great bunch of, of friends and many of them still friends to this day and, and people who yeah they, they were following Jesus but like they, all, they, they lived a lot of life too you know. and um, I remember doing, doing mission like, and, and I would see all these guys that were a few years older than me uh, and they would do mission at Christmas time and Easter time they get you know go to holiday locations and you know what we know today you hear blue moose and red frogs and um, SUFM and OAC and all, all these all these ministries that would happen at Christmas time and so these older guys would do it and so it was kind of like you just you just wanted to do it because they were doing it and it was really cool to do it and so at the first possible opportunity, I remember signing up, and for me, the first one was an OAC ministry down at Lakes Entrance. And, and then so we go down and we do mission, and we, you know, we're going to the caravan parks and telling kids about Jesus and that. But in the meantime, then we're playing cricket on the beach and we're surfing, and like, just have all the fun in the world with these guys. So I grew up with this, with this concept of, of, of being around people who love Jesus, but life's fun. It's good. Like, life's good. There's adventure in there. And, and the stories, just, just the stories that I'd be able to tell you of what that led to. Like, good, good life. But even then, for me, and I said, that's a pretty privileged way to grow up, but even then, I still kind of had this impression, I wonder if you did, that, that God's this pretty serious sort of deal. Pretty serious. Got a friend who's a Baptist pastor and he, he went to, um, he, he, he was called to a new church to be the pastor of the church. And... Um, he said that he went there, and I think the first time that he actually ever went into the building of this church was on the first Sunday that he worked there. He'd, he'd spoken to people from the church, but not at the building. And he said, I walked in, and there, in the foyer, was this big sign that was hanging from the roof, and it said, quiet, please, people preparing for worship. <laughs> and he said, I saw that there, and then went through, and had the service, and he said, Jeff, on Monday morning, the next morning, he said, I came in, I brought my screwdriver with me, and I took that sign down. 
Because it's like, I just grew up with this, this kind of impression where you're kind of like, it's, it's, it's a pretty serious, somber deal. I wonder if you did. Did you? I mean, would you agree if I suggested to you that God often seems so distant? Like he's so mysterious. Like he's really hard to understand to grasp and more so if I suggested what would you say like he appears to be sober and somber and serious is that that really what he's like like is he just confusing is he confusing like this I had 18 bottles of whiskey in my cellar. And I was told by my wife to empty the contents of each and every bottle down the sink or else. So I said I would and proceeded with the unpleasant task and I withdrew the cork from the first bottle and poured the contents down the sink with the exception of one glass, which I drank. I then withdrew the cork from the second bottle and did likewise with it with the exception of one glass, which I drank. And then I withdrew the cork from the third bottle and poured the whiskey down the sink, which I drank. And I pulled the cork from the fourth bottle down the sink and poured the bottle down the glass, which I drank. And I pulled the bottle from the cork of the next and drank one sink out of it and threw the rest down the glass. And I pulled the sink out of the next glass and poured the cork down the bottle. And then I corked the sink with the glass, bottled the drink and drank the pour. And when I had everything emptied, I steadied the house with one hand, counted the glasses, corks, bottles and sinks with the other, which were 29. And as the houses came by, I counted them again. And finally, I had all the houses in one bottle, which I drank. And I'm not under the affluence of alcohol as some tinkle people I am. I'm not half as thunk as you might drink. I feel so foolish. I don't know who's me and the drunker I stand here, the longer I get. You reckon God's just confusing? Or at best, maybe he's cryptic. You know, he tricks you. I read about a a new pastor visiting the home of his homes of his parishioners and and one house like he went there and it seemed obvious that someone was home but no answer came to his repeated knocks on the door so he took out a card one of his little cards and he just wrote on it revelation 320 and stuck it under the door and then next sunday in the offering bowl there was his card. And someone had written on it, and, and on the other side of it, it was written Genesis 3.10. So he grabbed his Bible because he knew what Revelation 3.20 says. Maybe you do too. You know, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That was what he said. And then he looked up Genesis 3.10, and guess what that says? I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid, for I was naked. <laughs> See, mate, like, is God just like confusing or cryptic? Or is He trying to trick you? Is he... And 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 maybe you're maybe you're not sitting there saying that this morning. But 
Bet your friends would. The friends that you feel that, that you should be reaching out to with this good news of Jesus, they would say, they would say, oh, he's archaic. He's outdated. He's, he's, just, he's just religion for you. He's high church. I mean, he does, doesn't he? Seems so distant, so mysterious, so hard to grasp and understand sometimes, don't you? And he does, doesn't he? Just appear to be this sober, somber, serious. Is that, is that really what he's like? Huh. Now, here... Mill Park Baptist Church, we're um, well into our study, aren't we, of the life of Paul? Focus, perseverance, exemplify. We've been doing this for a few months now, and, and, and if you've been here, you'll know Paul is an intelligent, wise guy. He's learned, he's educated, he's indoctrinated. Like, we've seen him. Come on, like, you've heard this, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's, he's formed, we've looked at learning and forming, he's formed under Gamaliel, who's a Jewish, sorry, a Pharisee doctor of Jewish law, really, really well known and regarded and respected. So Paul, he'd know, wouldn't he? If we're asking those questions about God and is that really what God's like, Paul would know, wouldn't he? Surely, yeah, 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 yeah. Like he's on his second missionary journey. We left him a couple of weeks ago. He was at Philippi. And remember, remember the Philippian legends? So come a bit further on the journey with him now, like this morning, and listen into some of the ways that he talks, especially when he gets to Athens. Because if we're looking at those questions of what is God really like, and in particular... How far away is he? How far away is God, really? So here's, here's where Paul is. Remember, we, we just left him when he was up here at Philippi. He's up here. He's come all the way up here, and they've, and they've, 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 they've sailed. Oh, sorry, they've, they've, they've trans... What's the word? They've walked. <laughs> I, I can't remember the word I wanted to use. They've walked, and then they've come to Troas. We saw that last week. They've sailed across, and now they're at Philippi. Okay, And if you're watching that screen, now they're at Philippi. <laughs> they are. All right. Remember Lydia from last week? Lydia the legend? Oh, two weeks ago. Lydia, legend, um, merchant. She sells really not just reject shop, but high-end cloth. And she comes from Thyatira, and that's where the cloth comes from. So now she's over there. In Europe, selling the cloth. Remember Lydia, the legend? And you remember we left them because they, they got put in jail. And remember the jailer? The legend, the jailer, he got them out. Well, God got them out. The jailer let them out. And then here's what happened. Look at this. Acts chapter 16, verse 40. Paul and Silas, Silas, his friend, who's with him, then they return to the home of Lydia. That's after they get out of prison. And the jailer and all his family, remember, they all met Jesus and got baptized. And we said that this is the sort of stuff that happens when the church works. People get to meet Jesus. 
So that's what happened, where they met with the believers and encouraged them once more before leaving town. Now, Luke, remember, Luke is the guy who's writing the story. And he now leaves them for a little while at this point. You can tell that by the way that the narrative works. Sometimes he says, we did this. And sometimes he talks about Paul and Silas did this. So obviously now he leaves them again. And onwards they go to Athens. All right, look in chapter 17. Paul and Silas traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. So you can see, oh, hold on, what happened there? Hold on. All right, here we go. So you can see here, they, they, they've, they've, they've come from Philippi and they travel this way here and they come to Thessalonica, which is up there. All right? Um, Thessalonica, modern day Thessaloniki in Macedonia. If you follow the story, Acts chapter 17, there's religious leaders there. Um, they're gathering and, and it says they, they gather, and, and I quote, they gather, I quote, some worthless fellows from the streets to form a mob and start a riot. We've seen this a few times over. The people who oppose Paul the most are the religious, the Jewish religious leaders. This, this is akin because the Jewish religion is the one that's been around for so long. This is akin to Jesus being here today and us opposing him. Because we're mainstream Christian church. They're mainstream Jewish religion. It's, that, that's what it's like. They're opposing Paul. It's like we were opposing him. And so they then, it's them, it's not irreligious people. It's them who get uh, worthless fellows from the street. They form a mob to start a riot. So this, like, this is violent and it's heated and it's intense and it's religious. Now look what happens. And, and friends, this always happens. When, when a mob of any sort forms... And they start telling stories to each other and to anyone else who'll listen. Look what happens. The people of the city, it's in verse 8, chapter 17. The people of the city, as well as the city officials, here's what happens. They were thrown into turmoil. That's what happens when mobs form. Stories start getting told. People start panicking. They're thrown into turmoil. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been happening for centuries, for years, for history. People get spooked when there's a mob. People get suspicious. There's something there that they were never suspicious of before, but now they are. You people... People then start, you know, people who are good mathematicians and they, they used to always, they always would have been able to say two plus two equals four. But right now they're saying two plus two equals five. And they might even be saying two plus two equals six or seven. <laughs> I had a pastor once say to me, a uh, really experienced Baptist pastor, and he said, sometimes he said, sometimes Good people lose their heads. 
That's what happens when mobs are formed. And it's the Jews that are leading the charge. And it's, it's ironical because, because they start talking about, you know, the integrity of the Roman Empire. Like, Jews wouldn't do that. But it's like, as they say here, we're, we're opposing Paul. So have you heard that little saying that any stick will do to beat a dog? It's like it doesn't matter what the stick is. If you've got to beat the dog, it doesn't matter. Use anything. So that very night, with all of this tumult, says in verse 10, the Thessalonian believers, the believers there in, in Thessalonica, they send Paul and Silas to Berea. It's about 50 miles away. And they walk there. I imagine they walk most of it during the night. It's, it's weird too because when they get to Berea, these Jews, they're still Jews, but they're, they're more open-minded. They listen really eagerly. They're, they're willingly searching the Scriptures, it says. And it's, it's a much warmer environment. It's, it's a much more inviting environment. It's working. It's working well. But then look what happens. In verse 13, so they've gone to Berea, everyone's happy, there's nothing to worry about. But when some Jews in Thessalonica, highly religious Jews, and these people, you're seeing this, aren't you? And we've seen it several times already. They're hell-bent on hunting Paul down and silencing his message. Look at this. Some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, They went there and stirred up trouble. The believers, this is the believers in Berea, they acted at once. They sent Paul onto the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. So we've got to get Paul out of town. Um, This didn't happen at this church. Another church where I was working, uh, the, the last church, there was a guy there who was particularly troubled and and my own feeling is there's probably a whole lot of stuff that was happening for him um but like a long long history of drug abuse and uh, um and a long history of all sorts of other things and one sunday morning uh, church is happening like normal um and and i was up there it wasn't preaching but like like what i did earlier here just just giving some announcements and i saw him come in the back door of the church straight in front of me down there and, uh, and as he came in, he was ranting and raving, and it was a bit nonsensical. You couldn't quite understand what he said. But as he came down the aisle, and I could see, like, he was really, really angry, you know. And, and he was accusing me. He was saying, I came to see, you know, naming me. I came to, with a fair few words in there, by the way, which I can't really repeat now. But, like, I came to see, he was accusing me of refusing to give him milk and bread for his kids during the week. And um, that was... And he came right up to me, and this is in front of the whole church, you know, and, and he came right up to me, and he was face to face, and you, most of you guys know, like, I, I'm a former cop, you know, so, and my, not just police training, but my instinct would be, like, when, when this is happening, like, I'm, I'm into a defense, into a defense mode, and if someone's going to, to hit me, and he's bigger than me, and he's going to hurt me, I, I, I want to hit him first. And I just remember thinking really like this, and people were gasping, and it was really, it was like it was really disturbing for people. And I'm thinking, man, if, 
if I, if I do anything at all to this guy, if, if, if I show anything at all, if, it's definitely if I, if I do anything at all here, I'll never, ever win. Like, and I don't mean win the fight so much, but like, it, I'll never be able to recover from that for these people. If they see me do anything like that, it, it won't. I'm going to have to just stand here. Nothing I can do. And he kept ranting and raving, and then a few, few people, and some of, some, of we, you know, some of our elders came up, and, that's a, and, and then you know, next thing they were sort of trying to stand in between him and me, and I was just backing away. But then the, the bit that I, I just didn't like, one of the elders, and I'm sure he totally meant well, you know, but like, he came and he, he sort of just grabbed me gently by the arm, and he said, hey, come with me. And he wanted to get me out. And he took me right out of the building, you know, so, and that, that diffused the situation, diffused the situation, and then I don't know exactly what happened after that. You have to ask Deb. Deb was there. Haley, you were probably there too, but you're so small you don't remember it. Um, but like, you have to ask Deb what happened. I don't remember because they took me out of the building to get me out. And I was, I was, I was like, and as we were walking out, and all of a sudden I said, hey, I, just, I don't want to be let out like I'm a criminal or something, you know, but get me out. That's what they did to Paul. We've got to get him out of town. So it says in verse 15, those escorting Paul went with him to Athens and then they returned to Berea. So they go, for, oh, sorry, they, they go, <laughs> I'm not good at this today. Um, they, 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 they go with him, so they've been in Thessalonica and then they've gone to Berea and now they go down here to Athens, all right? And then the people who go with him take Paul to Athens they leave him in Athens and they then go back. See there it says in verse 17, verse 15, they return to Berea with a message for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. Now, friends, just remember our questions like, where's God? What's he like? Um, how's he hiding? How close is he really? Is he, is he closer than you think? Um, so Paul's a virtual tourist now in Athens. Athens, um, modern day, ancient Athens. And what does one do if you're in Athens for the first time and you've got some time on your hand till your friends arrive, you're waiting for your friends, or you wander around and you might say sightseeing. But most likely if you're the Apostle Paul, then you're sightseeing intentionally. So it tells us there, if you read, that he's deeply troubled by the idols that he sees everywhere in the city. It says that he goes to the synagogue and he debates, firstly with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and then when he tells them about Jesus and his, you know, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and they call him a babbler, and they accuse him that he's peddling some sort of foreign religion, so they then take him to what's called the council of philosophers or the Areopagus and there it is still standing today and the council of philosophers all of those men and they are all men they say you're saying some startling things we want to know what it's all about and if you look in verse 21 of your Bible. Remember, Luke's writing this. This is an editorial note. So it's like Luke adding in what he wants to say. It'll be in brackets in your Bible. He says, It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time 
discussing the latest ideas. It's their pastime. So here's tourist Paul, tourist. He's distressed with all the idols he's seen. He's troubled by the arguments that he's heard from the philosophers because he knows that he's not in this city. He knows he didn't come to this city or any other city for that matter with bad news or wrong news. He knows it's, it's not false. It's not made up religious news. He knows that his news is the good news of Jesus. He knows it's life-saving and it's eternity lasting and it's world-changing and it's people transforming. And most importantly, he knows that it is 100% true. And if only these people, if only they could see it, hear it, and comprehend it. So listen to what he says. This is what we went towards this morning, wasn't it? Hey, let's, let's hear what he says. Listen to what he says. So Paul, standing before the council. Now, other manuscripts of our New Testament may say, or they do say, I'm sorry, your Bible may say, that he was standing in the middle of Mars Hill. Who's heard of Mars Hill? Not many. Mars Hill, in the middle of Mars Hill. Or... The ancient Greek says in, in other manuscripts, in the middle of the Areopagus. Standing before the council, he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious. Very religious. He knows it. And as he gets talking, maybe it is, friends, that God's not exactly who we think he is. I mean, don't you think that in this day and age, and I don't mean just here at Mill Park Baptist Church, but in this day and age that we, we often have this picture of God as this big cuddly teddy bear. And we richly and popularly describe him like that, don't we? I mean, what do you think? This quote here, it's attributed to Henry Rousseau, but I'm not totally sure that it was him who said this because it's attributed to a few different people. But nevertheless, to say that God created man in his own image and man, being a gentleman, returned the favour. I'll make God in my image. He's the God that I want him to be. He's the God in this age where you have your truth, I have my truth, you have your truth, you have your truth, and all of that's fine. He's the God that my truth aligns with. He's the God that, that fits my worldview. My Western worldview. So by virtue of that, he's probably a different God for an Eastern worldview or for a third worldview. 
He's the God who rubber stamps my lifestyle and values and my behavior with its rationalizations and justifications. See, maybe I've made God in my image. And we set out, us people, we set out looking for God. And, and we acknowledged a few minutes ago that, that if anyone can help us do it, Paul, Paul can. So here's now, here's his maiden speech, and it's on Mars Hill in the Areopagus. It's verse 22 onwards. Men of Athens, I notice you are very religious. Look what he says. For as I was walking along, I saw your many altars. And one of them had this inscription on it. To an unknown God. You have been worshipping him without knowing who he is. And now I wish to tell you about him. Worshipping him without knowing who he is? Reckon you can do that? Blaise Pascal, French physicist. He said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. Just remember that, that in the, the 13th century, um, we just talked about people as man. So don't read it as the male gender. Read it as people. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. You see a vacuum? It's a, it's a hole. And it's a hole that has this unique shape of God. And which that even when we as people, listen to this, when we have no idea what we're looking for. Even when we can't explain the disorientation. And we can't account for the emptiness. And we just can't escape the feeling. No, 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 no. It's, it's not even just a feeling. It grows. And it, we can't escape this profound knowledge that we have deep in the core of our being. Things aren't right. And so what we do as people is we, we, we cover it, we, we, we medicate it, we try every which way we can to satisfy it. What we're literally doing, friends, do you know? We're actually literally worshipping God without even knowing who He is. Because we're trying to fill the hole. Look what Paul said. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Friends, the God. He's the God, capital G. He's not a God, small g. He's not you have your God and I'll have my God, small g. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord, Paul says, the Greek word there is the word kurios. And that means supreme Lord over all. Animate, inanimate nature. But it's with a twist because the opposite, the antithesis of that word is another Greek word, and that is despotes. And you know the English word that we have, a despot. So he's not a, he's not a, he's not a despotes, Lord, like a Saddam Hussein over Kuwait. 
or a, or, or a despotic lord wielding authority over slaves. It's in contrast to that, kurios is a lord, but he's not just lord over all, supreme, majestic lord over all. He wields total authority, you hear this, for good. Total authority for good. That's what the word means. So he is lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. We affirmed that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus never, ever, ever promised to build church buildings. He never promised he never promised even this thing that we're in now. He promised to build his ecclesia, remember? The, the gathering, the company of believers. That's what he promised to do. Doesn't live in man-made temples. Human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need there is. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the earth, and he decided beforehand which one of those would rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Now, if God really does seem distant, mysterious, hard to understand, if he's, if he's sober and somber and serious. If you, were, if you were ever going to be confronted, my friend, if you were ever going to be confronted with the suggestion that you may have God wrong, that you may have designed God in your own image, that's confronting because it could turn your life right upside down. It could make you feel downright uncomfortable right now. But if you were ever going to be confronted with that suggestion, just tell me this, when would you prefer it to happen? Now, today? Or on some distant day in the future when, as God promises us again and again and again, every single one of us will stand before Jesus the judge, the kurios Lord, when we're promised that at the name of Jesus, whether we want to or not, whether we thought we would or not, or whether, 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 every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Would you prefer to be confronted with the suggestion that you may have created God in your own image now or then? You want to shock now or then? What's he, I mean, what's he really, truly like? I mean, he doesn't live in church buildings, it says there. He doesn't live in this church building. He doesn't live in shrines. He, he doesn't live in my Western society status quo values. He gives life and breath to everything. My friend Carl in California, I love the way he says, Jeff, not a, spar not, 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 not a sparrow eats a worm without God say so. Now, it's my choice, and it's your choice, whether or not I live with that, not just in mind, but, but like front and center. But I better believe that there'll be a day of reckoning which God promises me, it'll not be pretty or pleasant if I got it wrong. He decides which nations will rise and fall. He determines their boundaries. And if he does that for nations, then I wouldn't want to be fooling myself right now to think that he won't do it with me. 
Look at this. Look at this. Verse 27. His purpose in all of this, Paul said, was that the nations should seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. There it is. Not far from any one of us. God may be closer than you think. Some of you might have heard of this this story. This is a really well-known book. It's called Peace Child. And um, this is the story. In in 1962, so in many of our lifetimes, um, Don Richardson and his wife Carol, they risked their lives. They they went to the Sawi people of Irian Jaya in Indonesia. And this story tells their unforgettable story. They live among these primitive, like these people when they go to in friends, like in the 1960s, they're headhunters and they're cannibals. And you know what? They value their treachery. What they do is they, they have someone who they're going to make a victim and kill them and eat them. What they do is they actually praise them and, 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 and fatten them up before they kill them and eat them. And then Don and Carol Richardson, as they work with these people, they, they, they realize this, this tradition which is, which is history old with these people of the peace child, of, operating, of, of offering a small baby as a peace offering in these people who are totally irreligious and have never even heard the name of Jesus. You see this, this beautiful principle. Here's another way of explaining it. Um, one of my favorite authors, Caroline Leaf, if you've seen these books, she's got a book called Switch on Your Brain, and then the new book is Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. And in, in, the, second, in the second book, hopefully where I came in, thanks, Sean. What? Now we're okay. Thanks, Sean. Good on you. Um, in the second book, she really just expands on what she writes in the first book. Nothing different, just, just more. Now, just really briefly, if you've heard of this, this principle, it's called the neuroplasticity of the brain. All right? This is a principle, and now it's been around for a while. Um, Dr. Caroline Leaf pioneered the research on the neuroplasticity of the brain. Big term. What does it mean? What it means is that, and the research now, like, no one... Do you want me just to pick up another microphone, Sean? Something's gone wrong here, hasn't it? What about if I just pick up this? Sorry about that, friends. Um, Back to what I was saying. The neuroplasticity of the brain, um, and so now uh, no one would dispute this. No one does dispute it. It's, it's, It's just accepted now. And what it means is that we're... We're capable of, as people, all right, of actually rewiring our brains. Um, and if you're familiar with psychology, for instance, this is the principle that cognitive behaviour therapy works on. And so we are fully capable, and as I say, like, trust me, the, the evidence is beyond any dispute from people now that we can, we, we, we're capable of doing that. We can rewire our brains by changing our thinking. 
And Caroline Leaf is a neuroscientist. Um, she loves Jesus as well. And she refers then to this research that she did in the late 20th century. You ever thought of this verse? And I wanted to give it to you out of the King James Version in the Bible, which was written a fair while before Caroline Leaf pioneered her research on the neuroplasticity of the brain. Look what it says. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. New Living Translation will tell you, um, be transformed into a new person by changing the way that you think. And so Caroline Lee says, well, science is catching up with the Bible. God's really not so far away Um, for you, my friend, for your friend, for the people that you'll rub shoulders with and break bread with and do deals with and take classes with and from this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow morning. He's close. Look at this. Um, He's made everything beautiful in its time. And he's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You see, God's closer than you think. You philosophers on Mars Hill, he's really close. And Paul says... In verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. As one of your own poets says, we're we're his offspring. He gives us everything we've got. Augustine, he said that our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. You know, Augustine's confessions is, you know, one of the greatest literary provisions in history he said our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee so he's close he's real close (laughs) like literally closer than the air around me I need that. We need this. Our church needs this. It's close. Much closer than we think. And we know that our people need him. And not just, yes, but not just the people who are sitting in here right now. People are stones throw from our door in our city, our state, our country and right across the world. We know that people need him. And look what Paul says for the end of this little talk in the Areopagus. He said, and since that's all true, we should not think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's former ignorance about these things, but now he commands everyone 
everywhere to turn away from idols and turn to him. And here's the promise, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who, do, who this is by raising him from the dead. Hey, my friend, my friend, my friend, he's closer than you think. And he doesn't want you missing him or mistaking him or caricaturing him. Anyone who seeks God, find him. He he promised, he said, if you look for me in earnest, you'll find me when you seek me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Anyone who seeks God, you find him. Paul writes in one of his other letters, Look at this. If, if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And as the scriptures tell us, see anyone, anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who generously gives his riches to all who asks for them, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hey, anyone who seeks God will find him with. So, uh, friends, let's just pray together. And, and as we pray, I just want you to dream with me for a sec. Go on, just dream, all right? Go on, like, pretend you're asleep and have a nice dream. Dream, dream, dream. Just imagine this, all right? If, you, if you're part of Mill Park Baptist regularly, then imagine it for here. If, you, if you're from another church, imagine it for you guys. Being, just imagine what it's like. You're in this family of Jesus followers. It's this community of people. And they're people who are doing their best. They're not perfect. They're not trouble-free. They do get things wrong. They do make mistakes. But they're doing their best to learn of and to know the real true Jesus and not just that but they they want to do more than just learn about the real true Jesus they're doing that so that they can copy him in their lives whatever that might mean whatever the cost however radical it is they want to they want to know and understand the real Jesus so they can copy him and they know and they're resolutely convicted of it, these people, that God's not, he's not tricky or distant or removed or archaic or hidden. He's actually much closer than we think. And they know and it comes out in everything they do and say in that church. And it comes out in their culture and in their familyhood and their relationships and their loving and serving and giving for the sake of God's kingdom come, coming and of God's will actually being done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine that? Anyone who seeks God will find him. I want to be part of a community like that. I bet you do too. Jesus, thank you. Thanks for the good news. Thanks for reminding us of it. Thanks that you are way closer than some of us ever thought. Thank you. You're close. Thank you. Amen.
Thanks for listening in, friends. Love you guys. See you around.